0: Welcome to Brainbeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts on brain health and function brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Dr. Heidi Rossetti. Our guest today is Pete Stavanoa. Dr. Stabanoa is a board-certified clinical neuropsychologist and professor of pediatrics at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and a fellow of the National Academy of Neuropsychology. He works with children adolescents, and young adults with a variety of neurologic illnesses and developmental disorders. Dr. Stavanoa has authored over 100 peer-reviewed articles and also co-authored two books for parents that have been translated into multiple languages, including Stress-Free Discipline, Simple Strategies for Handling Common Behavior Problems, and Stress-Free Potty Training, A Common Sense Guide to Finding the Right Approach for Your Child. Welcome, Dr. Stavanoa.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. So, we're talking today about brain development. So, I feel like we should start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about what is going on with the brain in gestation?
1: Sure. So, during the first few months, the brain really starts to develop um, really within the first four to seven weeks or so of pregnancy. And so, there's a group of cells that form and they form into a tube structure called the neural tube. And so, then over time, what happens is that tube starts to differentiate into the various parts that are going to become the major structures of the brain. So we have the forebrain that is going to become kind of the cerebral cortex, the part that most people think of as the brain, like the big part. And then we have the midbrain, which are a lot of the important structures that help to manage bodily functions, memory functions and things. And then we have the hindbrain, which is going to really be the most basic structure of the brain. And then the spinal cord is going to develop off of that. And so over the course of gestation, there's several tasks that are happening in terms of brain development. And one is just simple, make cells. Like the brain just has to make a whole lot of cells. And so we refer to this as cell proliferation. So that's the time when the brain is just expanding in size. More and more cells are being created. And a lot of that occurs during the first half of pregnancy and then during the second half of gestation those cells are starting to differentiate because the brain ends up being a lot of different types of cells and that helps with specialization of function and then another thing that's occurring is something called cell migration so when the neural tube forms you know it's as a tube structure it has an interior exterior and so cells are forming on the interior but then they need to travel to the exterior of that neural tube and so this is A process called migration. And so these cells are traveling along predetermined pathways to a final destination where they're going to then make appropriate connections after the child is born. And so a lot of this stuff is really pre-programmed. This is where the genetic blueprint really is important in terms of brain architecture and brain development, because a lot of this is just following a predetermined plan.
0: Right. So interesting. And so a follow-up question to that is, In a pregnancy, is there a certain number of weeks that go by where if the baby was born prematurely, that there would would or wouldn't be significant brain issues?
1: Really, it kind of mimics viability. So if a a baby is viable and then can be protected after delivery, their brain can continue that process of development. But then it does bring up sort of the issue of complications because as you would imagine, this is a really delicate Process, you know, there's lots that has to go right. And fortunately, the vast majority of the time, it does go right. But in a premature birth, there become a lot of potential complications that could affect brain development. So, things like if there's pulmonary problems, so breathing problems that may lack oxygen to the brain, or there can be certain bleeds that occur in a premature birth that can be injurious to the brain in a way that is going to necessarily affect development as well.
0: And what are some of the other factors that can impact fetal brain development?
1: These are the things that I'm sure as women are going through pregnancy, their doctors are checking in on, you know, really regularly. So obviously, any medical problem that the mother may experience has a potential impact on the fetus and brain development. So things like infections, high fevers, those kinds of things, even stress, significant stress can result in potential impact on the fetus. And that's something that doctors are monitoring as well. Good nutrition is important because the developing brain needs the proper fuel. And then things like substance exposure, so smoking, drugs, alcohol, even environmental or community toxins. The reason that these are avoided in pregnancy is because these can impact brain development. But even certain medications, doctors will monitor medications. They will not prescribe certain things simply because of the potential for it to impact the fetus brain during development. Anything that could be harmful to the mother potentially could be harmful to the fetus.
0: Can you elaborate on other things parents can do to optimize brain development in utero?
1: Yeah, certainly. You know, in addition to just healthy lifestyle things, good nutrition, exercise, stress management, those are really essential. Things like talking to your baby during pregnancy, you know, playing music, relaxing activities that can be calming both to the mother and to the baby. So things to kind of manage those potential environmental stressors, but also things that might promote, you know, those attachment behaviors that we're really going to look to in terms of promoting a positive relationship with parents. So talking and reading all are beneficial.
0: So let's say now the baby is born. What should we know about brain development during early childhood?
1: Yeah. So when a child is born, this is a staggering number, but babies are born with about 100 billion neurons which is pretty much mostly what they're ever going to have. And that sounds sort of frightening because, you know, if we're born, you know, we we can only lose things. But that, again, speaks to the importance of prenatal care because we want those 100 billion neurons to develop as well as they can. Now, just as a caveat, there are some areas of the brain where neurons do develop even in adulthood, such as the hippocampus. So with the basic hardware in place, a major task for the developing brain really is starting to form connections. We call those synapses. And those are really just chemical connections between each of the neuron cells that allow for communication between those cells. And so, a major thing that's happening in infancy, early childhood, and even through school ages, there's a huge number of synapses. It's sort of like the brain is overproducing connections so that it makes sure that the really important ones are made. And so, part of that process is creating these connections or synapses. And then another component is synapse consolidation. So as you might imagine, you in the developing brain, all these new connections are happening, very active process, but there are certain ones that are going to be really important and they do need to be stabilized. And so the brain has a process for doing that. And so this is what allows us to learn things and to hold on to things. So this is the persistence of learned behaviors and even if they're not activated, not very often later. And in fact, one of the processes the brain has is once these synaptic networks become strong you know, during childhood, we have networks that provide inhibition of new networks around those networks. So it basically suppresses activation of things that might otherwise create interference. And so these, again, somewhat pre-programmed in terms of the process of synapse formation. But this is where we start to talk about how experience and other external events can really help shape those formations.
0: Okay, and can you talk about how those things influence the development of those connections? We
1: start again with genetics. Genetics really creates sort of the blueprint for the brain architecture. So how the brain develops is dependent and and highly so on genetics. It sort of follows a pre-programmed plan. This is why when we look at developing children, and we ask about developmental milestones, learning to crawl, walk, and talk, there's a parallel among typically developing children. You know, there's windows when those things typically happen. And so that's just evidence of that predetermined program. It's kind of rooted in genetics. But then there's the nature part of it, but then there's also the nurture part. So when we think of the nurture aspect of brain development, we're really talking about environment around the child.
0: So since we can't influence genetics, let's talk more maybe about the areas we can influence. So when you say environment, what sorts of things are you referring to?
1: So when I say environment, and people may have different ways that they're defining this, but I'm thinking really of the physical, around the child, but also around the child's brain. So we refer to that as the micro. So that's the environment around the brain cells and that sort of thing. So This is where we, again, reflect back to just healthy lifestyle, some really basic needs kinds of things. So nutrition is essential. If the proper fuel is not there or not enough of it, that can really affect the micron around the developing brain. And that can impact how those brain cells are developing, as well as how those synapses are developing. But then some of the other things that just have to do, and I sort of relate to environment, things like. Positive relationships, attachment relationships during childhood, you know, just a feeling of security and predictability and then protection from dangers, protection from toxic stress. Those are all some aspects of the environment.
0: So what exactly do you mean by toxic stress?
1: We think of toxic stress as kind of a long-term, high-intensity stress. So, you know, it can even be a traumatic stress. Think of it that way. And so when we, this is adults too, when we experience this, you know, this can result in a cascade of neurochemical and inflammation and inflammatory processes that can really endure. And in a developing child, these can have significant and negative impact on brain development. So examples of what this might look like, you know, certainly obvious things like child abuse or child neglect, long-term neglect. But a lack of an attachment relationship that could be a toxic stress for somebody. A strong example of this several decades ago, there were lots of institutionalized orphans who were being adopted. And so these were children that really had a toxic early environment where they just lacked relationships. There may have been abuse, but certainly significant social and emotional neglect was occurring. And there weren't those positive relationships and those impacted those children. And so there was sort of a pattern to how they developed. Part of that was because those early stress experiences really imprinted on their brain. But I want to differentiate that toxic stress from more tolerable stress or even positive stress, because I don't want parents especially to get the message that they need to protect their child from every stress, certainly from those high intensity traumatic stresses, tolerable stresses, those things that children need to endure, you know, first day of school, being with a different caregiver. Let's say those are stressful events for a child. And yet those are things that are tolerable. And if the child is able to endure that, that actually can go into building their resilience later.
0: So on the topic of stress, what thoughts might you have on the effect of these two years of COVID pandemic on younger kids?
1: Yeah. So I think that we look at the social isolation that everyone is experiencing to some extent. I think that that would be a significant potential player. Children are perhaps not getting as much socialization. There's more screen time. Perhaps there's more need for electronic communications. And certainly those have a role and can be very positive. But I think that parents need to be deliberate about making sure that there's still a lot of in-person interaction, even if it's within the small nuclear family, just making sure that that continues for kids.
0: Is there anything in particular about masks themselves, like for babies? I just think about babies and studying faces around them. Do you think that matters at all?
1: I do, because if we go back to this idea of forming synapses. So, if we're forming synapses, some of those synapses that we're forming are highly dependent on the experiences that we have. And so, when we think of functions like facial recognition or emotion recognition, if we're limiting those experiences, potentially we're limiting connections. Now, that's not to say that those things can't be recovered. And certainly there can be compensation for that by having ample opportunity for maskless interaction. But I do think that it's important to be mindful that these experiences that a child may be having, there may be a limiting effect of some of these COVID protections that we're taking.
0: Okay. So, development experts talk about this sort of sensitive periods or critical periods in childhood can you talk about those concepts in the context of the brain and brain development
1: sensitive and critical periods are times when the brain is just basically ready to learn so synapses are occurring rapidly and the brain really is eager to pick up certain types of information and so during a sensitive Period in a sensitive period might be language, social input, visual stimulation, but those kinds of experiences that help to develop our ability to process that type of information. The brain is just particularly open to learning that type of information and developing enduring neural networks that can make sense of it, process it. So a critical period is sort of a time limited of a sensitive period. So the brain is ready to learn, but that window may shut at some point. And so kind of the classic example of a critical period is is our ability to learn. So as a baby is developing during early childhood, the brain is eager to learn language. That communication function is so important to our adaptability as humans that it seems like that's just an aspect of evolution that we're just genetically pre-programmed to want to learn. So during early childhood, you know, children are picking up vocabulary and like syntax and like structure and all of that. And that's just a natural part of that language development. However, if the brain is deprived of that, so we might think of a rare instance of someone who simply has no exposure to language during that early childhood critical period, that window does close. And it's not that they can't learn language and can't learn some capacity to communicate. But it's unlikely that they're going to learn language structure in the same way that a typically developing child would have. So we can think of the window closing. And then again, it's not that the brain can't develop that function, at least to some extent, but it's a lot of effort that goes into redirecting that development along that trajectory. And so then that affected area may never develop quite fully. And so there's a number, the visual system is another area that way in terms of if we're deprived of visual input, then we have certain neurons that are specialized for vision. And if we're deprived during that critical period, we may never develop that visual processing capacity.
0: I would assume then that the emphasis that's placed on reading with your child might fit in as well.
1: Absolutely. And it's something that helps develop language and and it also helps promote attachment. These child development activities that we think about have, you know, like on the surface of it, well, gosh, reading is great. So you want to develop reading, but you're also developing language, planting the seeds for later language comprehension, but you're also promoting a positive relationship with your child and a closeness. You're doing so many things at once, you know, what seems to be such a simple activity.
0: So I understand that it's normal for the developing brain to actually lose synapses and connections. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that sounds frightening. We all of a sudden start to lose all of these connections. But going back to that early childhood proliferation of synapses, you know, where it's almost like we're overproducing. So then during adolescence, there's a significant reduction in those synapses. And that process is sometimes referred to as pruning, prune a shrub while we're pruning our synapses. And so the idea here is that synapses that aren't used or aren't functional To us, they're not helpful to us, end up being retracted or otherwise lost. And so use it or lose it principle is a significant determinant of what synapses are going to remain and what ones are going to become really solidified, stabilized, really be enduring as compared to those that start to get cut down. Now, the positive part of this is that it starts to allow for specialization. If we have too many synapses that creates a possibility of interference. So as we prune these down, what we're really pruning down to are the ones that are the most useful to us, the most functional, but also that improves our efficiency. So now we're able to do things in a more efficient manner, meaning both that we're better at it, but also that it uses less energy to do it. And so all of those are really positive things, but there is a balance because that comes at a cost for the flexibility of the brain to learn completely different task if there's an injury to an area in later life you know after this pruning has occurred that's why it's harder for an adult to relearn a function that's been affected by brain injury
0: so that brings up the topic of plasticity so what exactly is brain plasticity and how does that change over the course of a kid's development
1: brain plasticity is just that ability of the brain to learn new things create new synapses based in experience. And so as a child is developing, we're again specializing. So our brain wants to do things in a specialized way because that improves efficiency. It reduces the amount of energy that we're using. And so plasticity is that ability to basically take on these new tasks and activities. And so as those synapses become more consolidated, stable, they become less able to take on new Actions and activities. And so over time, you know, while the young child's brain we think of as really quite open, able to take on these connections as we develop, the older brain is less able to do that. And part of that is there's a developmental aspect of just these synapses being pruned. But then also there's a there's physiology as well, where there's a substance called myelin that is developing in the brain. And that also, it's basically the way I think of it is kind of like if I have an electrical cord, myelin is sort of that plastic or rubber coating on the outside of the cord. And so it helps to reduce interference, it improves efficiency. And so over the course of childhood and into young adulthood, neurons are being coated with this myelin process really is complete until into our 20s. But once it's complete, that again, hardens the which is good. makes us better at things. It uses less energy, but it also fixes our brains in a way that they're less able to be flexible.
0: So let's talk a little bit about brain function and how that maps onto development. So how does infant and early childhood behavior reflect what's going on in the developing brain?
1: We look at infants and we watch them putting everything into their mouth and, you know, just the, the way that they're exploring the world you can see how it's a very basic sensory exploration, looking at everything, listening to everything, putting things in their mouth, touching things. They're learning a sense of personal agency is what I would call it, just that they have an ability to impact the world around them. And so, you know, when we watch them start to learn to play simple games, they learning cause and effect, you know, they're developing that social awareness, ability for that social back and forth that's going to be so important. For them later on, they're learning through their experiences, they're trying things out, They're failing at things, they're learning what they like, they're learning what they don't like. And so when we watch development, you can really see it's mimicking all of those connections that are occurring and that overproduction of connections that's going to get pruned down later to those specialized connections.
0: Are there any really common misperceptions that parents have about their child's behavior or brain that you find yourself addressing frequently?
1: Yeah, I would I would say that probably the biggest one is that parents will often sort of ascribe adult level responsibility or accountability to to the kids behavior. So, a great example is a temper tantrum. When I look at a temper tantrum, you look at it from the standpoint of the child does not yet have the brain capacity for frustration tolerance. And then there's a behavioral aspect of it too, where they're exploring, is this going to give me what I want? And so if it's reinforced, we may see persistence. It's probably not so much that the child is making those choices the way we think of as a choice in our behavior. They're still developing those capacities for emotional regulation. You know, what is socially acceptable and even their awareness of others, you know, is fully developed. So I think sometimes parents will think of a very young child as having the motives and capacities for self-regulation.
0: So I feel like parents everywhere would want me to ask, what does a pediatric neuropsychologist do when their kid is having a temper tantrum?
1: In a word, ignore. If that's an option, and most of the time it is, you simply ignore it because I can't get inside the child's brain to quicken the pace of development of emotional regulation. Something that's just going to occur over time, it's going to be largely dependent on experience. And so I recognize that. And so ignoring them or giving them attention is part of the experience. That's going to be a result of the temper tantrum. So by paying attention to them, that can become inadvertently, like we're not meaning to reinforce the tantrum, but that's what we might end up doing. Whereas if we ignore it, We're not feeding, we're not giving that tantrum any fuel at all. So the child then is dependent on themselves to self-regulate. The tantrum will inevitably wind down. And so when parents tell me that ignoring doesn't work, I always ask them the last time their child had a tantrum in an empty room. It's always when there's a human around. And so the human is giving them some feedback and likely that's something that's reinforcing to the child. Even if we don't intend it to be, you know, and when I say reinforcing, It's not that you're having a positive response. It's that you're paying attention.
0: Inadvertently reinforcing to them. Okay. Yep, exactly. Okay. And so thinking about a school-age child, are there certain things about brain function that we should know?
1: I would just say it's really continuing this theme of experience and exposure. That's how they're learning new information, concepts, skills. You know, for example, learning to read is something that obviously, we all put a, a huge emphasis on and it. it's such a priority. And so I think that sometimes parents will look at a child who's maybe pre-reading and they worry that that child's not reading maybe at the same time that a peer is reading. Sometimes it's simply a reflection of the neural hardware not quite being there. you know. And so it could be that that child is just going at their own pace in terms of learning to read. But another is that Sometimes parents will, or, or teachers as well, will sort of bombard a child, you know, with literacy type information, sort of not recognizing how development really does need to be hierarchical in terms of we start with the very base, we start with learning what letters look like, then we start with what, what sounds, then we worry about combinations of letters. And so sort of in a linear fashion that we're just compiling all this information, but it's building on each other. And that's how kids are learning to read. And so if a child has a problem, a true problem, then there's markers that we'd look for it. My field as a psychologist to see where this is pathological versus just a developmental process. Maybe it's a little bit slower to develop.
0: And so I guess same question in terms of what's critical for us to know about the brain in an adolescent.
1: Again, at that point those synapses are starting to prune and things are starting to become more enduring. So the connections that they're making are becoming much more adult and more fixed. But at the same time, you know, we all observe that adolescents often are risk-taking, exploring, doing things maybe that we don't want them to do. And certainly some of that is just hormones and other things like that sort of at play. But I think that a point I would make to parents is sometimes parents will have this sort of a knee-jerk response to remove accountability. The teenager, teenagers take risks just being dumb teenagers. But I think an important aspect of that is that part of it may be that there's still a brain development immaturity there. You know, it's still not quite fully fixed, but it's important to recognize that there's a, a lack of experience as well. So may do a dumb thing, But part of that is because they've never done that dumb thing before and they've never experienced the negative consequences of doing that dumb thing. And so that's why many people will do a dumb thing once, but they don't do it again because they learn from those experiences. And that's part of somebody is transitioning really from even early childhood through young adulthood. It's more obvious because they're smarter more sophisticated and can get into potentially worse trouble. And so sometimes that draws our attention, you know, as as grownups we have to kind of remember that they don't have the wisdom that we otherwise hopefully have acquired.
0: Hopefully, yes. So do you find it interesting that the legal definition of an adult is still 18, even though we know now that technically the early 20s be a better cutoff, so to speak, in terms of brain development?
1: Yeah. Based on brain development, yes. It is sort of an odd thing that we give our 16-, 17-, 18-year-olds such significant responsibility But at the same time, many of them can handle it. So I don't want to take away from those that are able to do that in spite of their brains. And I think that's part of the variability that goes into this idea that even in light of maybe not quite fully developed brain, there's that lack of experience that most adolescents have. And yet some just by their very sort of temperament are more inhibited and cautious, you know, by nature and others are going to be risk taking. And that may persist into adulthood as well. But you're right in that if we look solely at development
0: In that age group, that kind of young adult phase, are there things that you see when a child is transitioning into adult care? Like if you're working with a, a child, let's say with ADHD or with some kind of neurodevelopmental challenge, are there things about that transition period that you as a neuropsychologist find yourself focusing on with patients and their families?
1: Yeah, and I think that it's, it's really focused a lot on the families because it's a hard transition for a family to make, for parents to make, basically of letting go. Because we all become accustomed to, you know, all of us have our routines. And so families have routines, parents have routines, teens have routines. And so those relationships for a teen to really successfully launch to young adulthood and launch to independence, those relationships need to necessarily change. Those parents need to be more deliberate in terms of that process of letting go. Part of that process of letting go likely means putting more responsibility on their team for self-care, self-direction. And so I think that what I see a lot is that parents are struggling. They're struggling to recognize the importance of their role in that transition. And instead, they're concerned about their teen who doesn't seem ready for independence but they've not changed their own parenting in ways that would otherwise facilitate and kind of prod along that teed towards independence. And so, you know, the, the word we would use is you're enabling. And so as parents, we have to be thoughtful and just recognize that at that developmental stage, that individual is ready to move toward independence. It's not all or nothing. It's not that we're going to kick you to the curb tomorrow, but this is a process that we want to be thoughtful about and deliberate about. So that as parents, we're altering our behavior in a manner that facilitates a successful transition to, to toward independence.
0: So how should parents know or decide when their child's behavior is outside the normal development, so to speak?
1: So some of it is parents will say, oh, I hate to compare my kids. Well, I always say it's fine to compare your kids. If your child has siblings and you're seeing behaviors, aspects of development that are really deviant from what the siblings did, that would be a potential marker. If you're hearing concerns raised by others, so primarily teachers. So if we're hearing concerns from others who have lots of experience saying, yes, this child is behaving or developing in a manner that's not quite the same as most children, that's compelling information. But certainly if parents even just have questions, you know, if, if they're worried, I always encourage them to talk to somebody, even if it doesn't end up being a full, investigation of what the underlying issues are anything, if it's just for reassurance or just a reminder that the child is developmentally on track, you know, anything that gives that parent some reassurance sense some confidence that their child is doing okay.
0: On the flip side, can I ask, what about parents who are eager to identify if their child is gifted, quote unquote?
1: Yeah. So I think, again, that's something where if a child really is standing out, then that would be a potential goal for an assessment to see if that child really is advanced in certain cognitive areas. But I also caution, if you think your child is gifted, think about what your goal for getting them that label is. Because, for example, I've had children that are super bright kids, but not necessarily academically all that inclined. And so parents may be eager to get their child that gifted label, But then when they investigate what the gifted program is that their child may gain entry to, it's simply an academically accelerated program. So it's just more academics at a higher level and that really is fit for that child. Mm. Whereas if a gifted program really is focused more on exploration, conceptual thought, letting that kid really blossom.
0: So we've covered a lot about brain development. And again, all we've talked about is what can parents do if they're going to do one thing to optimize brain development for their child,
1: it really goes back to a healthy lifestyle. You know, a healthy lifestyle is going to be the foundation for a healthy brain. And if listeners listen to others of the podcasts in the series, they're going to hear that in aging adults. It sounds very simple, but it's not, obviously, not all of us do it. So good nutrition, exercise, regular sleep, all of those are essential. But then, especially for babies and you know children we're looking for positive attachments providing that supportive relationship that supportive home life focusing on being well-rounded that's something that I'll see with some parents is that they overfocus on one aspect of development so they may want their child to be you know the strongest in school, but they sort of don't think so much about their physical needs or social emotional needs or friendship needs or those or other talents that the child might have. Just as all of those synapses are being overproduced during early childhood, only to later be whittled down and pruned to the ones that are the most important, and the most essential. We want to expose our kids to everything early on. And then over time, they're going to show us what their preferences are, what their talents are, And we can then kind of go with that later.
0: So what should parents expect to happen when their child has a pediatric neuropsych assessment?
1: There's three components to it as as I sort of think of it. So one is an information gathering component. So this is going to just concretely look like an interview with the parent talking with them about their concerns, about their goals for the evaluation, background information about how their child has developed, family history going back up to this idea that genetics has such a significant role in brain development and healthy brains, but also pathological issues that might arise. So a person with a learning disability is at higher risk for having a child with a learning disability. A person with ADHD is at higher risk for having a child with ADHD. That's where some of those genetic themes come in. So in the interview phase or the intake phase, we would also be asking for collateral information about how the child is doing at school. We may even collect information from teachers, talk to teachers, other records. And then the second component is the actual direct assessment with the child. So this is where we would go through a series of developmentally appropriate tasks to look at various aspects of cognition. So this might range from language function to memory function, to academic skill development, general intelligence, attentional issues, executive functions, self-regulation, self-management of cognition. So we would run through quite a few activities to try to get a sense of where that child is in terms of their performance relative to typical children. And then finally, all of that information gets analyzed, think that all through, and then we provide feedback to the family in terms of how the child did relative to others specific to the parents' concern, specific to their questions, and goals for the evaluation in the first place. Certainly anything that we see that wasn't necessarily brought up as a concern. you know. So for example, there's times when I've evaluated a child and I see clear indicators of something like dyslexia. And maybe that was about parents' radar but that's something mm-hmm. I bring up to them. But the whole functional goal is then to provide guidance back to the parents. And so this may take the form of Referrals to specialists, you know, for interventions, say your child needs a tutor or they may need certain services at school, then we can help try to facilitate access to those services. Sometimes it's psychological therapy that they may need. Sometimes we might refer them for a consultation with their physician for medication options. Really, that feedback component is sort of the plan and the guidance back to the parents. Here's what we're seeing.
0: So last question is, how would parents go about finding someone qualified to do that type of assessment with their child?
1: Yeah, so certainly the National Academy of Neuropsychology, the foundation, that would be a great way for parents to kind of explore possible resources in their local area that can be searched to identify neuropsychologists that would be appropriately trained experienced to provide this kind of service.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Well, this is fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your expertise.
1: Um, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: Well, that does it for my conversation with Dr. Stavanoa. For more information about the NAN Foundation and neuropsychology, visit nanfoundation.org. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Brain Beat.